Well, this morning uh, we get to talk about uh, we get to talk about wedding music. We get to talk about wedding songs, and wedding music is kind of a unique genre of music um, all, all together, separate. And I bet if I would have asked you uh, at ten o'clock, like make a list of the things we're going to talk about at church today, I doubt any of you would have in a, in a list of fifty. <laughs> Probably none of you would have added uh, wedding music or wedding songs into that list, but that's what Psalm 45 is. It's a, it's a wedding song. It's a wedding psalm, if you will. Um, I, I, as a pastor, I have, um, you know, done, done several. I've officiated several weddings. It's always an honor for me. I always is something I, uh, I enjoy to do. So I've seen and been a part of so many different weddings. And so like, I kind of have a unique vantage point. And as I think about wedding songs, I mean, wedding songs can be really, really good or wedding songs can be really, really bad. I don't know, maybe I'm imagining this, but it seems to me that there was a, a wedding that I attended. I don't think I officiated it, but at some point in the wedding, or maybe it was in the reception, I remember them playing uh, every, um, let's see, what, what is it? Um, uh, every Breath uh, by the Police. Now, I got to say, like, as a, you know, as a child of the 80s, I'm a huge police fan. I love Sting. I love it when Pastor Derek does the Sting thing and sings and plays his bass at the same time. But I just don't know that every breath is the best song to be played in your wedding. Here are the lyrics. I'll be watching you. Every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. I mean, that sounds more like a stalker than a, a bride or a groom. And so I don't know that that's the best one. Not only for me, uh, being a pastor, have I gotten to officiate weddings and been part of weddings, but my wife, Luann, is a singer. And so she gets asked to sing in weddings. And let me say this, first of all, that she's always, you know, super honored that anyone would ask her. And she would even say, like, of the most nervous that she gets in singing, it's singing in, in ceremony. It's singing in weddings because it's, like, on the video. It's a memory. She's participating in that. So she gets so nervous. And I was thinking about her singing and the many times I've gone with her for her to sing at a wedding. And I was thinking about different wedding songs that she has sung. And I wrote down, like, what's the worst wedding song? Now, now if, you ask, if, you, if you ask her to sing this in your wedding, uh, so be it. We'll just leave it. We'll just let the, let the dice fall. But I asked her before, I kind of mentally in my mind wrote it down. And then I asked her, I said, what's the, what's the worst song you've ever sung in a wedding? And she said, uh, Bette Midler's The Rose. And so again, people in the 80s and 90s, if, if that's what you chose, uh, so be it. I mean, there's just a general rule out there that if Bette Midler is involved, you need to steer clear, right? I mean, whether it's a movie, a song, whatever it is, if it's got Bette Midler in it, just you probably just need to back up away from that thing. But nevertheless, The Rose is a song that some have chosen. It says this, some say love, it is a river that drowns the tender reed. I mean, you want to be talking about drowning? Listen, it gets, it gets better. Some say love is a razor, that leaves your soul to bleed. I mean, this is some great 80s lyrics at their best. Some say love, it is a hunger, an endless aching need. I say love, it is a flower, and you, it's only seed. Wedding songs, right? They're a very unique genre, but what we have in Psalm 45 is we have this wedding psalm that is inspired of God. We're thinking about that because it is the context that's what is happening here. That's the scene. The scene of Psalm 45 is the scenery of a wedding. It is a Hebrew king that is getting married. 
We really don't know for certain who this Hebrew king is. Possibly it's King Solomon, and possibly it's when King Solomon married uh, the daughter of Pharaoh. And so there's this joining together of kingdoms and we kind of pick up on some of that speech. I don't know, maybe it could possibly be Solomon's marriage to one of his other 700 wives, right? It just loses a little bit of its luster whenever you um, know that context and that piece of information that Solomon had um, 700 wives and even more concubines. We don't know the exact context, but we know this. The writer of Hebrews picks it up and talks about it. And he, not just us, but he is the one as well who um, gives, ascribes value and it pointing forward to Jesus. Psalm 45 is a psalm. It's a wedding psalm. And it is a psalm of celebration and a psalm of comfort. So I want, to think, I want you to think about those two things first. What's occurring here is a it's an arranged marriage is happening. That's why I say it's a psalm of celebration because we're celebrating marriage. We're celebrating these two coming together. And, and again, in this time, it's probably two kingdoms kind of being united in some way. But not only is it a psalm of celebration, but it's also a psalm of comfort. This bride and this groom had probably never even met one another. They'd not met, they'd not fallen in love. Uh, in it, none of those things are maybe seeing each other for the first time. I mean, she didn't even get his Tinder profile, so she couldn't even swipe left or right. I had to Google that, and I know that if you don't want it, you swipe left. I, again, I Googled that. I'm not on Tinder, but I saw that, and it's Google. Not that anything's wrong, but I'm a married man, but you swipe to the, let me make sure I got that right. You, you swipe to the left, but she didn't even have that choice to swipe to the left or to swipe to the right. It's a psalm of comfort because what the psalmist is singing about as he's singing about the character of the groom. Remember how, for those of you that are married, remember how nervous you were in that back room as you awaited your wedding? Gosh, even though for me it's 25 years ago, but I remember how nervous I was, nervous about the ceremony, nervous about this life that we were about to embark upon, nervous about all those things. And then could you imagine if you'd never met the person you're about to uh, marry? It's meant to bring comfort and relief because it's describing the groom's character. Why is this Psalm 45? Why is it inspired? Why is it in your Bible? Maybe you're asking yourself that question. Well, it's here because it's profitable. It's here because it is inspired. But even more importantly than that, marriage is an imperfect but living illustration of the relationship of God to his people. That's the purpose of marriage. Marriage isn't accidental. Marriage was begun in the garden. It was instituted by God as God brought Adam and Eve together. And what we see throughout the Bible in various places, we saw it as we preached through the storyline of the Bible. So we see this is that marriage is, it serves as this imperfect because you've got two sinners saying, I do, right? Coming together, this imperfect, but yet it's a living description. It's a, it's a drama that's being put on of the relationship, and some of you go like, well, that describes my marriage, a lot of drama. But it's, it's meant to be that. It's meant to come together as an illustration of this relationship of God to his people. Now, don't confuse this. The substance and the object is God's relationship to his people. The shadow of that is marriage. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. So if you still have your Bibles or your Bible app, and I hope that you do, 
I hope you're sitting there. I like to imagine you sitting there in your living room with your Bibles open and standing and singing we're singing, and now you're sitting there and, and, and ready to devour God's word with me. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, we see this. As Paul writes, and he says, wives, I'm going to start in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, watch what he says right here. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Do You see what Paul does there. What Paul is saying there is that marriage is the illustration. The object, the subject, the premise is Christ and his church. See, everything that I said here, it's referring to this thing that is being acted out in our marriages. We see that marriage is the storyline of the Bible. It's the direction that we're heading in. We could have hit it, but we didn't hit it. But in Revelation chapter 19, so Revelation is getting very near to the end. And in Revelation chapter 19, what we see taking place is a marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus, and his bride that he is marrying is the church. Psalm 45 is not just about any wedding. It's not even just about a royal wedding. Like we understand that royal weddings, even in the United States of America, royal weddings are a huge deal, whether it's a, a, a you know, Prince um, Charles marrying Diana or whether it's Prince Harry ma marrying Meghan Markle. Again, I had to Google that, but nevertheless, but Psalm 45 is about a wedding, a royal wedding, but it's really about the wedding the wedding that is, it is painting a picture, pointing forward to the wedding that happens in Revelation chapter 19, the wedding of weddings. And two points that I want us to see. Two, just two, just two things. We'll break it down into two parts. The first one is this, that King Jesus is the greatest groom. And the second thing I want us to see is the church is his beautiful bride. And what that means is, this psalm, it applies to you. Whether you're married or single or divorced or widowed, if you are a believer, then this marriage that's being described here in Psalm, in psalm 45, it applies to you. It's about a marriage that is coming. Verse number one, what we see is we see the, the, the narrator speaking here. This is the narrator, the author of the psalm. 
He says, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. And so what he's saying is I've got a lot to say and I can't wait to say it. I'm really excited. My, my mouth is overflowing. My, my heart is full of what's happening here and my excitement about this wedding. And then what we see in verses two through verses nine is we see this description of the groom. Verse number two, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. That as the ultimate groom, Jesus leads with his words. That Jesus as the husband, Jesus as the groom, Jesus as the king, he's giving leadership. And what we see here is the character of the type of a leader that Jesus is. And he leads his bride, he leads his church, and he leads them with his words. And what The psalmist says is grace has been poured out on your lips. That Jesus never speaks with imprudence. Jesus is never brash. Jesus is never harsh. Jesus is never destructive. Jesus is never flippant with his words. Could you imagine a leader that was like that? A world leader that could lead in such a way that never used his words to hurt people. Many of us, we grew up and we learned the little rhyme from our parents that maybe the, the, the most untrue thing that our parents ever told us that said sticks and stones will break our bones, but words will never hurt us. And that is just untrue. Words have a lot of power to them. When you speak them, words can inflict harm. Now, I don't mean creative words, uh, creative power like God has whenever he spoke, but our words can inflict harm. They can do harm. They can build up and they can tear down. And the Bible has tons to say all throughout it about our words and our use of our tongues. Jesus will say that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, that the mouth and our words, what comes out of them are indicators of what's occurring in our hearts. And that's why the psalmist says that your your lips, they drip with grace because grace is in Jesus's heart. Grace is coming out of his heart and falling onto his lips. Jesus will never speak harshly to us. Jesus will never be imprudent with his words, but neither is Jesus into flattery. That most of us, we have this inner Michael Scott inside of us, again, from the office. I think that's one of the reasons why we resonate so well with the office, or at least like I do, resonate so well with the office is I see myself in so many of the characters and I see myself in Michael Scott whenever he, he says this. He says, do I, na- do I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like to be liked. I enjoy being liked. I have to be liked. I have to be liked. But it's not like this compulsive need to be liked, like my need to be praised. I mean, that's what most of us have inside of us if we have this, this compulsive need to be liked, this impulsive need to be praised inside of us. And this is the truth. Jesus is never harsh, but neither is Jesus ever into flattery. Jesus never shrinks back from speaking the truth. And when I talk about Jesus speaking, just to be clear, I'm talking about our Bibles. How does Jesus speak to us? He speaks to us through his word. But here is the truth. The Bible will sometimes hurt you. The Bible doesn't hurt you. You may not be really reading or coming to the Bible in the way that you should. I had a member and a friend just even a few weeks ago tell me I've been tell me that she'd been studying the Sermon on the Mount. She's been reading Martin Lloyd Jones's commentary, and she said it has been so painful, pain for good. Jesus never shrinks back from speaking the truth. The Bible does hurt. The Bible does sting. 
The writer of Hebrews says it's a sword. It pierces, it divides, it cuts. It's what it does. Jesus's words, they never intend to hurt for hurt's sake, but it's a hurt that brings healing. It's painful whenever a doctor resets a broken bone. It's painful when the surgeon cuts you open, does surgery, and then sews you shut. It's painful when a loving parent disciplines you. Jesus and his word is the same thing. And what you and I, what we get to do as followers of Jesus, as those who are married to this leader, such as Jesus, who leads us in his word, is what we get to do is we get to trust him and trust his heart and trust his word. In a few weeks, we're going to begin studying uh, the book of 1 Timothy. And over and over again in 1 Timothy, I think three times, Timothy will, or Paul will say to Timothy, this saying is trustworthy. And so we're going to entitle 1 Timothy, trustworthy, trustworthy words for the church. And that's what you and I, we get to do in the Bible. We get to approach it, not with mistrust, but we approach it with trust. Marriage is nothing if trust isn't present. And the question we got to ask ourselves is, do we trust Jesus enough to accept his words? This King Jesus, this groom, this husband-to-be, does he have the right to speak into every area of your life to give shape and to inform and to speak with the voice of authority over every area of your life, your money and your time and your sexuality, what you watch, what you don't watch, what you read, what you don't read, what you participate in. Does Jesus have trust? Do you trust him enough to give him permission to speak with his word, to reign and to rule over you with his word in every way? Maybe here's a thought for you to think about. Does Jesus's words shape the way that you think about the world? Or does the world shape the way that you think about Jesus's words? The difference is huge. Tim Keller said, if God never disagrees with you, never corrects you, never contradicts you, then chances are you're, you, are you are worshiping an idealized version of yourself and not God certainly not the God of the Bible, the true God. Jesus as a leader, his, his words, his lips, they drip with grace. He's leading us by his words, but also as the ultimate groom, Jesus leads with his life. That's right, we're on verse number three. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. What the psalmist is saying here is he's packing heat. He's a groom, but he's packing heat. He's got a sword on his side, in your splendor and your majesty, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. This groom isn't just a lover, but he's also a fighter. Every spouse wants to be protected. That's a natural desire that we have is to be protected, to be protected against what goes bump in the night. When we hear something, raccoons in the trash can or whatever, I don't look at my wife, Luann, and say, get up and check on that. That's my job. That's what I do because my job is to protect her, to protect her against that or to protect her against a badgering salesperson or to protect her against the pestering in-laws or to protect her from coworkers or tear them down or to protect even her or myself, from those destructive inner thoughts as well. 
Jesus as the better groom who lays down his life to purchase and to protect his bride. It says, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Notice Jesus knows not just how to fight, but he knows when to fight. He knows what's worth fighting over. The truth is what Satan loves to do is he loves to instigate fights in the church. He loves for us to confuse who the real enemy is. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians and says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestled against Satan is what he's saying. His emissaries, his principalities, his powers that stand in opposition to Jesus and his truth. But what Satan loves to do, he loves to sow seeds of discourse in the church. He loves to instigate bickering and infighting and division. And we've seen that in 2020. And the truth is, we'll probably see it again. It's nothing new. What happens is, is we forget the greatest cause and we pick up these little pet causes. We become divided by political party. We become divided versus mask versus no mask, vax or anti-vax, homeschool or public school. And that is what we're experiencing even right now. And what's happening is we're forgetting who the real enemy is. We're turning over and we're, we're killing our brothers and sisters. What Paul says in Galatians 5, 15, he says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He's talking about Christian cannibalism. We turn on each other. It's friendly fire, but yet Jesus never does this. Jesus knows what's worth fighting for. He takes up the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, and that is what he's fighting for. Jesus, he leads us in our fight, and he fights with his own life. He never turns on his people. He never mistakes his people for his enemies, but he leads them and fights for them at the expense of his own life. Jesus's majestic ride to victory was his march outside the city gates to a place called Calvary. His right hand and his left hand, they taught us all an awesome deed as they were stretched out on a cross. It's there that the battle was fought. It's there where Jesus will be led into victory, where this king himself would be pierced, not with arrows, but with nails and a spear. It's exactly what we read in Ephesians. Jesus has loved the church and he has given himself up for her for the exact right fight at the exact right time. And he won. He won over Satan and sin and death. And the proof is in his resurrection. He's already won the victory. And the fact that the kingdom still stands today, he proves that he is the greatest groom. He is the king of kings who has defeated all the king's armies, all the king's enemies. And that is the truth. Verse number six, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's eternal. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Now it's gonna turn and speak even more about the character of this king. Look, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now that's a simple text of scripture that you would think like, hey, that's the big E on the I chart. That's what we should be doing. We should be loving righteousness and hating wickedness. But the storyline of the Bible over and over again is how we as human beings in our sin and in our pride, how we flip-flop that, how we call wickedness rightness and we call what's right, we call it wrong. It's in the book of Malachi. It's in the book of uh, Micah. It's all throughout the New Testament as well with Jesus, as Jesus comes and addresses the Pharisees and the scribes. 
But Jesus, he leads with integrity. Jesus loves what's right and he hates wickedness. Verse number eight, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from ivory palaces, uh, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of, of fear. What this is basically telling us is reminding us that Jesus is beautiful. He's lovely. He's beautiful. We should desire him. In fact, that's what we see starting in verse number 10 as we see the response of the bride. We see this, this narrator, this psalmist, this songwriter who's writing this song and he's now telling, telling the bride, like, here's the character of this king. Here's the groom that you're about to be married. Here's how he is going to lead you. He's victorious. And now here's how you should respond. Hear, O daughter, verse 10, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. And the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre and will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. Because Jesus is the greatest groom, the best husband, the best picture, then how we respond to him is we marry our lives to him. That's what he means here when he says, forget your people and your father's house, that marrying your life to Christ is a picture throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul's writing of what it means to be a Christian. You are united, he says. In the same language that he's used, he uses it in Ephesians, uh, he uses it all, I mean, all throughout Ephesians, all throughout Romans, that we are spiritually united to Christ. It is this picture of a union similar to the picture of, uh, that's happening and occurring in marriage. You're married to Jesus. And in marriage, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 5, there is this, there is this leaving and there is this clinging. There is a leaving and a cleaving and a coming together. In marriage, you're leaving, as he says. You're leaving your parents and you're being joined to another. You're being joined to this spouse. And the same is true in Christianity. The same is true in this. As you marry Jesus, you're leaving behind the world. You're leaving behind sin. You're leaving behind your rebellion. You're leaving behind dead religious works. You're leaving behind old habits. You're leaving behind old influence and you're being joined to Jesus, forming a new life, his life, a love of life and a love of, of a life of love and a life of fidelity to Jesus. That's what it means to be Christian. It says here, he is your Lord. Now bow to him. Leave that out there a minute. For some, that may make you cringe at the picture of advice being given to a bride to bow. He is your Lord. Bow to him. We could discuss the pros and the cons of patriarchy in another sermon, but here is the point of this text. It's talking about Jesus. And Jesus is the perfect groom. He's the perfect husband. He's the perfect leader. He's the perfect king. And he is worthy of your trust and your worship. You may not be able to say that about that adult that you married, but this is King Jesus who is perfect in every way. Do you trust him enough to surrender to him, to submit to him, to give your allegiance to him? That is what Christianity is. It's giving all of ourselves and joining to Jesus, uniting ourselves to Christ. Verse number 13, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with, wo- with robes interwoven with gold. 
In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her with joy and gladness. They are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Church, dear believer, dear struggling saint, you are beautiful to Jesus. That's what this text says. That beauty, as we say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder and who holds you, who beholds you is Jesus. We have a quote here um, at the Point Community Church that we quote often. It's a quote by A.W. Tozer. And here's what the quote says, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now that is true. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. But let me just play off that for a second. That what may be second of most importance is what do you imagine comes into Jesus's mind when he thinks about you? What enters into Jesus's mind, into Jesus's heart when he thinks about not the church universal, a collection of saints where like hopefully we got some that are doing really good and some of us not. And so there's like, you know, this curvy grade and all that, nothing like that. But when Jesus has his specific thoughts about you, what enters into your mind? What do you think he thinks about when he thinks about you? Do you think he feels disappointment and frustration and anger? Jesus isn't like us. He doesn't love the idealized version of ourselves. That's us. Paul says this emphatically in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, next week, we're going to start a new sermon series on prayer. We're going to start in, um, it's going to be three weeks long, and then we're going to get into 1 Timothy. So first, three weeks in prayer in 2021, and then we'll get into 1 Timothy. But in this, we're going to be, the, at least the first, maybe two sermons, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 11. When the disciples come and they ask Jesus, Jesus, teach us to pray. And what Jesus gives to them is he gives them a model of prayer, but then also what Jesus does is he reshapes the way that they think about, uh, uh, the way they think about God and calls him a father and then even gives an illustration there that he's a good father that knows how to give good gifts to his children. And then he also teaches in this the incredible access that they have as disciples, the access to the father that has been granted to them. And you got to know that. One of the reasons why you're shrinking back in your faith is because you think that you got to somehow get it all together before you can know Jesus, before Jesus will really love you. But listen, his love his love is the, it's, it's the spark. It's what ignites his incredible love, what ignites our spiritual lives, what ignites our, our love for him. It what ignites everything. His love awakens our love. And if you're wishy-washy on whether he loves me or he loves me not, he receives me, he receives me not, then everything is just on shaky sand of mistrust. We see here as we see the description of this bride, and she's called beautiful. She is beautiful. And what we see happening in a couple different places in the New Testament, but in Revelation chapter 19, is we see a bride that Jesus has washed, and he's purified, and he's called to himself that is beautiful to him. Verse number 16, in place of your fathers shall be your sons, 
You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. What happens here is the shift is back on the groom. In this marriage, they are establishing a new kingdom. What he's saying is forget the past. The focus is now on the future, an eternal kingdom. A kingdom, and that's what we're invited into. An eternal kingdom in heaven with Jesus. The psalm begins with Jesus and it ends with Jesus, who is the king over heaven and earth, who rode out victoriously to conquer the kingdom of Satan, sin, and death, not only to bring us into his own eternal kingdom, but so that by marrying us into his life, we get to be participants in his kingdom. We get to serve in his kingdom. We get to give to his kingdom. And we get to invite others to come and be participants in this new eternal kingdom. The psalmist, this psalm, it serves, if you will, maybe another picture. It is, a, it is a song to be sung, and we see that, but it also serves as a, as, a, as a royal toast, if you will. That in a wedding, oftentimes even in our weddings, the best man will toast the groom. And that is our job, church. We get to toast Jesus, and we toast him with our lives we celebrate him in the way that he leads us and loves us day in and day out. And we invite others to come and to bow their knee to the one true king and to raise their glasses, to raise their life to this royal king, to repent and to believe and to rejoice in the gospel alongside of us. I've been struck by not just the wedding songs, I haven't been thinking of those, I've been thinking about Christmas songs. Again, they're kind of a unique genre of music. And so being the Christmas season, and we've been listening to a lot of Christmas songs in our home. And even in my quiet time, my private time of worship, I've been listening to Christmas songs. And one line that has struck me time and time again is a line that says, a weary world rejoices. Weary hearts, weary minds looking for joy, and our joy is linked to Jesus. That's what this text teaches us. Our joy is directly linked to our worship of Jesus. Look back with me one more time at verse number one. The psalmist writes, and he says, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. Does that describe your heart as you think about King Jesus? Does that, is your heart overflowing with a pleasing theme about Jesus? Are your verses, are your words, are your thoughts, are they addressed to King Jesus? Is your tongue like the pen of a ready scribe bursting at the seams, looking for an opportunity to tell people about how great your royal groom is. And if it's not, then why? Chances are it's not because you're looking at Jesus, because Jesus is the perfect groom. He's the perfect husband. He's the perfect one who's come and lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved, purchased us to himself and protects us forever, and promises us a kingdom that united together, we will be united together forever and ever and ever. That's the best news I know to give. Let's pray. Jesus, 
We celebrate you. We toast you with our lives for who you are and for what you have done for us. You've purchased us. You've purchased us out of the dominion of Satan. You've purchased us out of our lostness. You've won us out of dead religion. You've won us out of our own rebellion and pride. You've pulled us out of the bondage of sin, set our feet upon the rock. You've saved us. You've filled us with your spirit. We have so much, even when a weary world, we are the one who get to rejoice because you've come for us. You've saved us. You loved us even when we would be unlovable, and yet you, with your perfect divine love, you have loved us. You've died for us. All praise due unto your name. We adore you and we worship you, Jesus. Be with us in these last few minutes of our scattered worship. May we not just rush from these places, but may we spend a few time, uh, spend a little bit of time in just thinking about and reflecting upon maybe even just verse one. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus, is your sweetness and your grace, is it dripping from our lips? A love for you. And Lord, may we focus on that. May we think about those things. In your name we pray. Amen.